Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 12th of February. While we're recording this, you will hear this on the 14th Valentine's Day. Tyler, how are you doing? Good, dude. Uh, spent the afternoon. I'm going stir crazy because it's been a very long time since fishing season. So I spent the afternoon frivolously shopping online for fishing stuff that I don't need. But, you know, other than that, hanging in there. We're getting a storm tomorrow. So solid. Oh, did you, what did you do for the Super Bowl? Did you have like a party or something? No, um, I made a very fancy four bean chili with like heirloom beans that I ordered from this place, Rancho Gordo. And that was like took up most of my day. And then I watched a very kind of boring Super Bowl. I don't know what you think. <laughs> I made Frito pie. Have you ever made that before? Yes, my wife loves Frito yeah, pie. But I did a terrible job with it. I don't know what it was, but I was going by the New York Times recipe. Yep. And uh and then I looked afterwards and it was like, I had already bought all the ingredients and it was like halfway done. And I was like, why does this recipe have three stars? And then I looked at the comments and it was like, wall to wall, this recipe sucks. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how do you make a bad Frito pie recipe? It's crazy. Oh my God. I don't know. It was really bad though. And I was embarrassed because we had people over and one of my friends was like, I, Frito pie is my favorite food. And this, this friend of mine, is a very good cook. So I said, I was like, I'm sorry, this Frito pie sucks, but it's the New York Times' fault. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not my know. fault, it's the New York Times' fault. Uh, they made the shitty Frito pie. Anyway, um, what, what, what do you think of the spectacle of it? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like spectacle light. I don't know, like the commercials were not particularly noteworthy and like a few were weird, like the Jesus feet washing commercial, you know? Um, and yeah, I don't know, it was fine. I thought... Um, like, I thought they handled the Taylor Swift thing kind of oddly in that, like, she, I don't know. It's just like there was a lot of lead up to it. And then there wasn't much like, you know, stuff about Taylor Swift, which I kind of expected. Uh, and I was like prepared to be annoyed by and then like none of that happened. And then I was kind of annoyed by that, you know. Um, but yeah, nah, I mean, it was fine. I don't know. What did you think? Well, I had this like voice in my head that is Mr. Reasonable. Right. And Mr. Reasonable, this was from my time at the New York Times as an opinion, whatever, writing my newsletter. And I would sometimes find myself. And this is actually part of the, this is a part of the job I actually liked the least. I liked that job a lot, actually. And it was great. And people are kind of whatever, you know, people are cool. But, you know, that much exposure at that pace was a little bit weird for me at first and so i started thinking like well what would like what is the most reasonable way to think about this right which is like a mix of neoliberal politics and centrist politics or whatever right like and kind of assumed wisdom there are many many writers opinion writers who just come up with a mr reasonable in their head and that's their writing career right like and that's i don't have anything wrong with it but i obviously i don't want to do that and so but it would it, it would sort of start to circulate in my head anyway I think my Mr. Reasonable take on it is that, oh, well, she's the biggest pop star in the world and she's so famous. And uh, who else would they show? Isn't it better to show Taylor Swift than to show a shot of the owner who like is just some rich dude? Because they usually show the owner's yeah, box yeah. instead of the Taylor Swift box. Right. So isn't the Taylor Swift box with Ice Spice and Lana Del Rey and a bunch of other random people? Yeah, I was actually had this funny thought. I mean, it's funny to me, but I was like, there's no Asian re American representation in the, in the Taylor <laughs> Swift box. 
Uh, <laughs> I was like, Ice Spice is definitely in there, you know, for for whatever. I I cannot imagine what Ice Spice talks to Taylor Swift about, but whatever. Um, maybe maybe just you know, like I just imagine Ice Spice feeling a little bit uncomfortable the entire time and just going like, "That's crazy," you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, saying yeah. like, "That's crazy," it's like five th- five times and then leaving. Um, but uh. Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable take, but I don't know, man. It's like weird to me that we only have one celebrity in America right now, basically. Totally. You know, like yeah, we yeah. have one celebrity in America. Like, what, what, what do what do you think is what do you think is like? Do you think what do you think is responsible for that? I've been thinking about this crazy right wing MAGA conspiracy that you know uh, the Taylor Swift Kelsey romance is like a plot to reelect Joe Biden, and. Uh, I do think if she endorsed Joe Biden, there would be like, it would make some difference, you know? Um, And that's crazy. And I think that's actually a function of the fact that like, we really do only have one celebrity at the moment. And there's something like bizarrely totalitarian about it, you know? Uh, And not that I I think, you know, Taylor Swift is going to do some kind of Biden endorsement or whatever. And I wouldn't care if she did, but it is like, I've been, you know, thinking about that crazy conspiracy because what's crazy to me about it is that it's like, if that happened, it would make a difference, which is bananas. And I, you know, I do think it's a function of this kind of, I don't know, one celebrity model we have going right now. I think that what has happened basically is that we have many, many more celebrities, period, right? Like people who are kind of famous and we've ever had because of all the obvious reasons. There's 15 people dancing on TikTok that you and I will never hear of because we're too old, but yeah, they yeah. are pretty famous, you know, and that. But we don't have people who are actually in the sort of upper middle class of fame anymore or even the upper class of fame. Now, look, I don't have I don't actually have an opinion about Taylor Swift's music. I don't I think I know two songs. Right. It's not something that has ever appealed to me. But I feel that it's a little bit weird right now. You know, that like there is something a little bit odd about the fact how famous she is, how little there resistance there is to that. Did you see the Grammys on Tracy? I've been tweeting about this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But like literally during the Grammys, there's like three people standing while Tracy Chapman is singing this huge viral moment. And one of them is Taylor Swift. No one else in her section is standing up. She's standing. You see her dancing and people. I was like, can I watch one thing that everyone shares as a culture together? without seeing this person? (laughs) Apparently not. No, man, it's crazy. I don't know. I so um, I really don't know any Taylor Swift songs. I said the other day that I wouldn't, you know, I'm sure I hear them all the time in the grocery store or whatever, but I would not like be able to pick out that like that's a Taylor Swift song. Uh, and so last night I was like going to get firewood and I put some on. I was like, I, I should know what this woman sounds like. And it's so bad. And I'm not like a music snob. I was like, I can't believe this is what is captivating millions of Americans. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There is, I'm reading this book. Uh, actually, I'm listening to this book, Cultish, um, which is about sort of uh, cults, but also like quasi cults, like Soul Cycle. I um, mean, it's by a linguist. I'm forgetting her name, but, you know, she makes the case that like cults are kind of reified through language and like what makes something a cult is that they like have these idiosyncratic terms and phrases or whatever that they use. But she uses Swifties as an example. Um, oh, and, really? Yeah. And it's like not a, a like a huge part of the book or anything, but right. I, I think there's like, 
that's what feels off to me is that there's something kind of cultic about it. And she makes the point that there's always been fandom, like, you know, the deadheads or whatever, but like, there's something that like teeters on the edge of violence. I think about the like Taylor Swift people, you know, um, where they do just get like, if you tell a deadhead, the dead sucks, they're just like, whatever, man, you know? And like, there is just like, that's really unacceptable for Taylor Swift people. I don't know. Um, it, it does. Or they'll call you a misogynist, which somebody called me last night. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. They were like, you're a loser incel. And I was like, okay, whatever, dude. You know, but like the, or like somebody was like, I think you should really uh, think long and deep and hard about why you feel this way. You know, I was like, okay, so you're calling me a misogynist deep inside. And the reason why I resist Taylor Swift is because of this, you know, like, sure. I mean, like, that's insane. I don't know. I find that to be insane. But, I mean, it's not just Taylor Swift stands, right? It's also like K-pop stands are like mm-hmm. this too. And we don't have to go into stand-up, but I did have one question that I wanted to ask you, which was a thought that occurred to me last night, which is that, you know, we had Tracy Chapman was this huge viral moment, right? And then we had uh, the Super Bowl. These are both huge viral moments. And I was trying to explain to myself in my head why Taylor Swift is so popular. And I was like, well, she had this huge concert experience that everybody went crazy over. And that's sort of when she... That is when she ascended to this place that she is right now. And I was thinking about what might link those together. And I was like, well, they're all live experiences, right? Like they're all like if Taylor Swift's job is to be the sort of head that pops up, you know, like that meme where the I don't know, it's like a University of Tennessee game. And this woman's head just pops up out of there. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, um, at really, really well attended live experiences and that that is the currency, right? At a time when nothing is live anymore and that people don't share any experiences. And there might be this thing where people are craving any type of connection in any type of continuous, simultaneous space together. And that Taylor Swift, for some reason, has decided, has realized, right, that if she just shows up to all these places that she's going to be filled. So what do we have left? We have sports, right? Live sports is the only, I mean, that's the only reason why people are bidding so much on these sports leagues is because it's the only thing that people will watch anymore together. Right. And at a specific time and not binge. Um, And then concerts, right? Like concerts are the other thing. And she seems to have conquered both those spaces. But to me that the takeaway from that is kind of dark. Yeah, man. Right. Which is just like, oh, actually, we don't have shared experiences anymore. The Taylor Swift discourse and just the fury at like her dating Travis Kelsey and all the like Republican conspiracy stuff about it, it's insane. But I also think like part of the backlash is for a lot of people, I think Taylor Swift is like one of the few things that seems apolitical, you know? And so when she gets this sheen of politics, I think people get really angry. And I think they get angry for the reason you're pointing out, which is that we don't actually have a lot of spaces in a sort of American culture discourse that feel like apolitical. I also think that's why people were so furious about the Colin Kaepernick stuff years ago, right? Like football was ostensibly an apolitical space and then suddenly there's politics in it and people are fucking pissed, you know? Um, but I think that's, I think that's maybe part of it. I don't know. I, um, I do think there's something dark though. And I think that's, you're right that it's, you know, we don't have many sort of wide scale social phenomenon that are apolitical that we all kind of share together and can talk about as kind of neutral ground, you know? Um, and yeah, I, th- I think there's something to that. I, it's not a sign of health. I don't think, you know, like a robust, uh, culture. Man, that Kaepernick stuff in retrospect, just, I mean, like, 
if you explained it to somebody where like this guy was took a knee at first he sat down and then he decided he was going to take a knee while standing next to a first responder because he had spoken to the first responder to understand why it was important for him to show some respect but he wouldn't fully stand for it because he wanted to spread this message during and that that person was blacklisted from the NBA and, or from the NFL. Never like that's cr- it's like still crazy to me that that, that, that totally happened. it's completely bananas. And it is like I just find it as time goes on, I just find it grosser. Yeah, I think I think about all the time is with Kaepernick is like, what if he had been a little better? You know, like I mean, he was like a fine player, but he was not like a Mahomes, you know, um, which is why I think he could be pushed out in that particular way. Cause I think there was a calculus that he wasn't like, it was good, but he was not worth the sort of like political headache. But I do wonder what, how that would have unfolded if it was like a really elite player, you know? Um, yeah. Or if it had happened two years before, you know, when Kaepernick had taken them to the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl you yeah. know? Um, and he looked like the, like when he was running at six foot six or however tall he was, I mean, it was, frightening to see you're just like oh my god this guy is like (laughs) i've never seen someone this big move with this much speed you know um yeah that would have been interesting but i think that basically what would have happened is that they would have struck some deal with him and that he would have um that they he would still be playing you know i think you're right he just was he had just had a bad season and he was just good enough i mean just not great enough for them to do this to, right? Um, and if he had been a little bit better, I think that he something else would have happened. But I don't know. I I I guess I just like I don't mean to be so negative about it, but I just like I think all this stuff is related in some sort of way, which is that we have one celebrity, we have like this desperation to have any type of shared moment, right? Um, that we have these moments that aren't really even like we're just watching viral clips together right like that's basically it um and then uh we have two people in their 80s running for president <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> i think i generally am not like a america doom doomer you know like i'm not like oh well, everything's over but i think last night <laughs> I, did. I, started, I started having these thoughts Uh, are we are we unable to produce anything in this country anymore you know like we can't even have shared moments like at every shared moment the only reason why anyone cares about it is because this like pop singer shows up you know like who cares (laughs) totally wild yeah Uh, okay let's go to the let's go to our guest today carrie sun has written um i don't know we read this book together tyler what'd you think about it that was awesome actually yeah, I yeah, found it. I enjoyed it too. Yeah, it was super fun. Uh, yeah, I was really, I was really, really stoked. It's like a world. Uh, you know, I I know people that are kind of in this world, but I just I don't care about it, and so I never ask them about their jobs. You know, so it was like <laughs> it was actually really. Uh, it was like it helped me understand some people in my life. So it was good. That's how I felt too. I thought it was a cool book too, and I enjoyed it. And I'm very excited about this conversation we're about to have with Gary. So. Uh, we have our guest. Welcome to the show. She is Carrie Sun. She is the author of a new memoir um, that I think is coming out the day that this episode airs. Carrie, when, when is the book coming out? It comes out Tuesday, February 13th. 
Oh, so it'll be it'll have been out one day. So that's good. I always hate when reviews and stuff like that come out before the book comes out mm -hmm. because like who can remember, you know, like, like it's like, oh, I'll buy this in a week or something like that. <laughs> like nobody remembers. So you'll uh, be able to buy the book. You can buy the book right now if you're listening to this. Um, we're really excited to have you on. Tyler and I both read the book. Uh, and uh, I think that I am very loath when people ask me to describe my own book. And so I would always appreciate when other people describe it for me, even if they describe it incorrectly, because then I can just I can just like correct them, you know. And so if I mess up here, Carrie, please tell me, you know, but okay. um, this is a memoir. And I would say that, you know, it is a memoir of a job, right? It is a memoir that involves a assistance position at for a very, very famous hedge fund manager at a very high level hedge fund, one that um, is sort of cloaked in intrigue and mystique, right, when the book starts, um, and that you, as the writer of the memoir and the main character in the book, start working for this man. Uh, he is a billionaire, and it sort of goes through what ultimately is like a harrowing, but also like kind of like appealing to me <laughs> at times <laughs> okay. experience and then towards the end i'm like no no that was not good <laughs> yeah, yeah okay so i did get well, it i did get it <laughs> you did get it and i want to know what was appealing to you and what was harrowing to you and yeah i'm so glad you picked up on those um um aspects because i wanted the book and my experience to seem both so alluring but also in many ways repulsive because that's those are the mixed and complicated feelings I had about the book. So thank you, Jay, for that description. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of biographical information about you, like, you know, because I think it's relevant to the book, right? Which is that <laughs> um, you were quite a student. You finished MIT in three years, although at, towards the end of the book, uh, you explain why that happened, right? And yes. it's not like because you were just a genius who was bored, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And that you sort of did what a lot of people do after that type of, you know, math and science type of background where you're at the top of people's perspective list for who they want to hire. You went to go work in finance for a bit and then you kind of fell out of it. And then this job opens up and you go and you interview for it. Um, one thing that, you know, Tyler and I were talking about this, which is that neither of us ever really wanted to work in finance. Like the draw wasn't there for it. But can you just explain? But I just remember when I was in college, I went to college in Maine, um, similar to the place where Tyler teaches now, actually sort of the sister school. And I remember there were like some kids who did this, right? They like went to Wall Street and everything like that. And I just didn't understand the draw. And then I would meet them and they would always be busy, you know, but um, like what, what, what's the, what was the draw of those types of jobs for you coming out of college? Well, so for me, just speaking for myself, the draw was primarily financial independence and stability. I think because of the way I grew up, even though uh, my parents eventually, <laughs> moved our family. We were upwardly mobile and we were, I started college. I think my parents were very solid, solidly middle-class. Um, my early years, which were very formative were, um, you know, we were living in graduate student housing where every quarter, every dime was so important to us. We did not have it. You know, my, my parents would pick, pick up coins on the sidewalk. It was just very uh, much of a struggle. And so those early years of mine in elementary school, I really developed an idea 
and a notion in my head and I equated money with freedom and stability and independence. And so uh, after I graduated college, I was very interested um, in finance, but, you know, I never interviewed for any investment banking positions or consulting positions, which were the more popular uh, tracks um, in during, during college. And I really wanted to do quantitative finance. I loved math. Um, and I mean, still do. And, uh, and I really wanted to kind of, uh, find a pattern in the stock market, you know, and, uh, you know, that didn't, uh, ultimately turn out to be the case, but so my, really just initial impulse there was for stability. And Jay, you mentioned, um, you know, the reason why I left MIT early, I uh, was unfortunately sexually assaulted my first semester uh, in college. And it just turned out to be an extremely, extremely difficult time for me in college. And this was well before me too. Um, and I hope, you know, college experiences has um, certainly uh, in terms of the sexual harassment has got gotten better since then. But, you know, it, I just wanted to leave college early. And because of that experience of not just uh, sexual assault, but the institutional response after that, which made me feel an additional layer of being trapped and limited in my options. And to be honest, that experience affected my grades. I had, um, I was a good student all throughout my life. And it, uh, I had some incompletes. I eventually turned them into grades, but, uh, the first semester after that, you know, the second semester of my college, I got my first ever uh, C and it was shocking. And I really thought that after that, because of that experience, I just, just had a difficult time focusing on school. Um, mm-hmm. and I thought I would, uh, I thought getting my C would ruin my graduate degree options forever. And so I, I also didn't allow myself to go down any other paths other than just like make money, be independent. So I would never have this feeling that I had of being both trapped in my childhood and also trapped in the, in the school and working conditions I had during college. And, um, but I would say that, you know, I, I don't know if my, I, I think my, some of my reasons are definitely probably um, understood and universal to to other people who might go into this field of just wanting stability, having come from a more challenging, at least certainly economic background. But, you know, I was listening or, or I read somewhere one, one of my uh, friends a long time ago from high school, the same 20,000 uh, population town that we were in, in Michigan, mid Michigan, she went to Harvard and she talked about why she went into finance, even though she had been really interested in, I think, English literature and m- many other just, uh, interests. And she said she went into finance because, you know, she didn't know what she wanted to do. And one day she saw a lot of people like walking really confidently toward, <laughs> Uh, the, the, <laughs> yes, really. I, those are her words, really confidently toward the recruiting center. And they, and then she was like, wow, what are these people doing? They have such confidence. And she was attracted to that, you know, ability to be confident. And I, I sort of critiqued this in my book because is it right. real confidence? Is it real conviction? Or like, mm-hmm. why is being ambivalent 
about something like necessarily wrong or bad, or I, I just like question at that age, how do we have such conviction about ourselves? I, I think some people certainly do, but I didn't. And I don't think that's bad. And so I think there's an aspect of going into a field where confidence and conviction and being sure of yourself is so valued. And I think for people who might not know where they want to end up, that that assuredness is can be really attractive just on a on a human personal level. Todd, did you ever consider doing finance or like did it ever? No, man. I uh, went into undergrad pre-med that lasted a week. And during that week, I went to a pre-med meeting in which they told me I would have to do internships over the summer. And I said, that's not happening because that's what I'm fishing. Uh, And so I became an English major (laughs) is basically how that went. But no, and I also didn't have a sense um, at all that, you know, there were certain majors that led to different kinds of economic outcomes, you know, um, like that's something I realized senior year when all of my friends with like econ majors were going into consulting or whatever. And I was like, oh, like these majors have different life paths, you know, which sounds really naive. But, you know, I grew up working class and that wasn't something that, you know, you just think of college as a ticket to a better life. You don't realize that there's this like tiered system within undergrad that leads to different kinds of results. Um, but yeah, no. And it's, you know, it's not one I, I, that keeps me up at night regretting but yeah that was i never entertained it did you jay uh no but you know i think about it from time to time and it's mostly re- I, you know i had a very rough college experience and i did not have any types of grades to let me do anything except apply for an mfa program which costs a ton of money that you go into debt for and you know they like they're like oh it's based only on your portfolio i was like i don't know if my portfolio i sent in was good <laughs> you know, but you did get all this money out of me and so um I was, I, uh, but you know, the appeal of it, I always understood because I lived in New York after college and I had friends who worked in finance and they made much more money. I mean, I made zero dollars because it was in grad school, but, um, you know, like I kind of understood the sense of purpose and, and appeal like of it because it wasn't, I mean, they weren't making tons of money, but they were making like $150,000 in 1990 or in 2004, which to me seemed like an incredible, incredible living. Right. Um, and, uh, but it was something about, you know, they would, they would, they kind of like felt walked around like they owned the city. Right. And that they weren't kind of surrounded by this neurosis that I was always surrounded by, not the people I was surrounded by, you know, in my own head, just like, what do I want to do? How am I going to get there? And they had this alternative to the life that I was experiencing in graduate school for creative writing, which was that uh, everything was like, I was like, I need to do something to get to these people's level so that I can be like a real writer and I don't have to struggle anymore and that I can like be part of the club. I'm not just some poser who shows up and plays poker with like all these famous writers because I'm good at poker and they find that to be interesting, you know? Um, And then it took me like 10 years uh, after that to even get a foot in the door. And the entire time I did have these thoughts. It was like, what if I went into finance? You know, I am good at games. I'm very smart. You know, I'm pretty smart. I'm smarter than half the people I know who are rich in finance. I'm like pretty good at puzzles. Uh, You know, like my, I'm like, pretty good at math even, right? Like not great, but like pretty good, right? Compared to some of these idiots. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but Gary, it was like reading the book. I It was something about like, you know, like the way that people moved and everything like that. And you asked me what was so appealing about the, the appealing parts of your job. And I was like, well, 
the office that you described sounds sick. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Totally. It is so, yeah, actually you descri- incredible. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit of it? Because you go about it in the book. Like, you know, like what were it? So you're, you know, you, you take this job, you're assistant to a very yeah. famous hedge fund manager. So like, yeah. w- what are your first days like? Um, I, I mean, I just thought the office was quite literally out of this world. Um, I, I even thought the, I joked to myself that the light made everyone just seem like they walked out of a Barney's catalog and they were Nobel prize winners. Like they were just the smartest and most, sorry, beautiful people on earth, you know, and they just kind of glided from meeting to meeting while like, (laughs) just owning the world and really just it felt like a true sense of they really know what they wanted out of life and they were willing to just do whatever it took you know and um and the other thing about this firm that was very attractive to me um and was that i was surrounded by people who strove and didn't think striving was a bad thing they really were so focused on being excellent. And my boss's motto was best in the world for everything. So if you're going to bots, like one of my tiny, 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 tiny early tasks was finding 70% dark chocolate for the office. Um, And so it had to, you know, there are approximately a thousand options, but I had to find the best option to his preference. And it's not like, you know, just pick five and hope one works. And it's just everything is so meticulous and detailed and considered like that weighing how to get the best 70% dark chocolate with sea salt um, for the office was considered with as much seriousness and uh, just, just gravity as um, another big decision. Like I want to talk to Michael Bloomberg, get him on the phone, you know, just everything was important, urgent and, um, as a result, exciting to me. So yeah. Yeah, yeah that was, was cool. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, that was the sense I had. I mean, it just, and I was also similarly to Jay had like a journey through the book where I was like, this job seems sick. And then I was like, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, I think I was really taken by, um, and then I, that goes through twists and turns throughout the book. But your boss, especially at the beginning, is just very nice and is constantly like, you know, there are gifts and trips to a you know a place in Montauk to go surfing. And it's like, this seems like actually pretty okay. Um, but then you begin, of course, to see the ways in which those kinds of niceties also exist to mask other kinds of problems, you know. Um, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it, it was, it's a, was a seemingly a, a crazy place to work. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's masking what I think is fundamentally the just big differential between employers and employees, the people who own the firms and the workers who are are there. And I just like, I could not bridge that big gap in power differential, no matter how close I was to power. And I was very close. I was the right-hand person to this founder, owner, billionaire. Um, And, you know, he even told me at all my performance reviews that he valued me um, so much. And he asked me how, how, what I wanted to work on to, um, to get me to stay here long-term. So he is very kind and he did reward me. But as soon as I sort of speak, spoke up for myself in terms of what I wanted from the job. And so I wanted just 
more support. I wanted more resources, more help. Um, and I also wor- wanted to ship my job into like, you know, he asked me, what else do you want to want to work on? And I, initially I wanted to pitch up on spearheading their philanthropic efforts. I don't have the bandwidth and time for that. If I can't let go of some of the other things he's still having me do, like file expense reports, you know, like I, I don't think so- someone else can file that. Um, even if I hire a part-time um, assistant to work for me or, or, or something else. But as soon as I started actually speaking up for what I wanted to perhaps change about my working conditions, I ended up receiving pushback. Um, and that, that just was very, very difficult. And ultimately I think at the end, what I realized was we were living fundamentally different realities and truths. And one of them is that, um, you know, he thought he was a pretty nice, which he is and easygoing boss. Now, I don't think he's easygoing. He cares about every tiny detail. And so there was no room to make, you know, any mistakes, um, which would be costly. And then the other story that he was telling um, him about the situation that, you know, I I couldn't get him to change the story, his story and the, the, you know, the way he thought about the situation is that like, I think fundamentally he didn't think my job was that difficult or that hard or that trying. Um, and I think there is a, like, I think he kind of, I, I, I don't even think it, he meant explicitly to do this, but I think he devalued the work that I, I, I did, um, both in terms of, you know, actual, compensation because at one point he told me that I was an extension of his um, eyes and ears and brain. And so if I'm, if I'm providing that leverage to him, I I, I think I should be paid actually a bit more. Um, But more than that is um, I think my, he thought that somehow my job was easy. He didn't know the work behind the work and how would he, right? He's been in a privileged position his entire life. And so I, I, try to educate him uh, on, you know, all the work that I was doing and where I was coming from. But also he didn't want to get involved in the details. He just didn't want to hear it. And when I told him I was burnt out, he said, well, I was burnt out for 10 years or more. If I, if I can do it, you can too. And it's like, well, yeah, you were burnt out, but also you own the firm. So your burnout enriches yourself. Yeah. yeah, You made a billion dollars. It's a lot easier easier to be. I would burn out for a billion dollars too, right? hundred percent. I want to go back to the beginning of the book here a little bit and your sort of starry eyed days, because I have a question about it, which is, and I'm going to read from the book, which is it was, and this is, you're sitting down with this guy in the book. He's named Boone. Right. Um, but that is a pseudonym. Is that the right word? Pseudonym is pseudonym. Yes. Okay. I don't know. I, you know, some of these literary terms, um, it was then toward the end of my first sit with Boone on my first day of work, I became a believer again. I believed in the possibility of good billionaires. I believed in good returns and good performance and that you and I and anyone who wanted to could be a good person at a hedge fund. I also believed that the game was about more than just money. Believing in him meant that I could luxuriate in my innocence, hold on to ideals. I did not have to restructure my understanding of the world. Now, I found this section to be super interesting because I think that, um, you know, there's a way in which like, you know, sort of people on the left like me and Tyler can be really annoying and just be like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> a good billionaire and then like do a meme of a guillotine or something like that right but like i the reason why i appreciated this is because i think that the reason why i found this book to be so interesting because i've seen some of the comparisons that it's drawn you know one of the obvious ones is liar's poker right which is michael lewis's uh, memoir about working at um a bond trading firm right early in his career uh but I thought that it was interesting because I think that what it does is it gives a sense of a type of person, and I think you were this type of person, where everything is, in terms of accomplishment at a young age, everything has been done, right? Like that, and that, but that there is no explicit politics that are formed out of that accomplishment, um, and that one does not really know what they want to do, but they understand that like, okay, I've achieved my entire life. And so I should continue to achieve. Right. Um, and that, that does take this sort of snowing in of oneself, right. You have to kind of believe in the world that you're entering. I, I don't know. I don't want to talk about myself too much there, but that's how I felt when I was 23 in an MFA program. You know, it's just like, there's part of me where I was like, this is fucking bullshit. You know, like these, pe none of these people are good writers. The people that these places are selecting, they're just selecting because they're hot or because like they have some connection or it's like somebody's niece or something like that. And like, I'm just fucking shut out of all this. Fuck all of them. And then at the same time, you have to convince yourself, oh, wait, no, I have to kind of do this. You know, like I have like I, there's no other path. And so then you come up with a totally fucked up amalgam of like different political opinions and they have to all coexist at once. So I don't know. That's sort of what I got out of there. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I found it very striking when I read it. Yeah, thank you for that. That is a, like I would say now, like Carrie in 2024 is cringing at that moment, you know. Um, okay. But as you mentioned, I, I it was really important for me to include it because um, I think that uh, uh, section you were reading was... I think, I mean, it was telling a lot of things about my views, but I think more than that, it was kind of showing my um, just ability to justify whatever system I found myself in. And that kind of system justification muscle had been developed. Uh, I had de been developing it since childhood. You know, every time my parents were critical of me or mean or hurt me, I actually ended up just like completely defending them, you know? And so no matter what kind of situation I found myself in, I didn't question it as much. And I just found myself being like, yes, I believe this person. I believe what they're telling me because I, I didn't want to question their, their worldview because if I questioned their worldview, it might mean I might have to completely change my life. And I wasn't ready for that at, at that point. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I believed I held on to that belief in the possibility of good billionaires until it completely came crash crashing down. And, um, I, uh, yeah, that, that was a very, it, it, it was a very important moment and what I needed to tell myself in order to survive, um, in this brutal burnout work culture. One of the things that I think is so compelling about it is that even as it's about this, experience at a very, you know, elite hedge fund that, you know, few of us uh, can imagine working at, there's something really universal about the, you know, sense that you end up working at a place and then you 
really do the work to mental contortions to justify it. You know, um, I mean, I experienced that in academia where it's like really easy to tell yourself that, well, I have this nice professor job and it's because I'm smart and blah, blah, blah. And then you're surrounded by people who are off the tenure track and really exploitive labor conditions, you know, and you try to think that somehow there must be something wrong with them and I did something right. But you know, yeah, that's yeah. not the case, you know, um, and you know that you're where you are mostly because of luck and you're probably not any more talented or deserving than the people who are, you know, scraping together a bunch of adjunct gigs. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I found so compelling is even as it would seem like this should be such an unrelatable story, it's actually really relatable. Um, on the sort of politics and good billionaires question, um, a passage and not just to keep uh, throwing your words at you, but uh, I thought this was a great passage. Um, you're describing this moment where your boss, you know, gets pulled over taking his daughter to, I think, a Taylor Swift concert or something. And you say, you know, you, it's really great. And you say that kind of moment um, awakened uh, flickers of political consciousness. You said, until now, I had been apolitical. I read the news I know of, but do not engage in any issues. I've never voted. Some of this is the result of intent intentional deprioritization of politics, but most of it is because some other part of me knows how much I feel compelled to identify with winners. Um, and you say you fear you might sympathize with the wrong team. And so um, over the course of this memoir, like there is this like flicker of political consciousness that seems to continue to grow and grow. Um, so I guess the question I have for you is like, do you see this as a political memoir and have your politics changed a lot since you know that moment when you're describing realizing that your boss is going to get away with a speeding ticket just because he's a billionaire and you have that you know that flicker yeah um thank you for uh sharing that uh moment because it was a very pivotal moment in in my life and you know when i'm it's the summer you know mid 2010s and i'm ha i'm helping my boss kind of get get really um, off the hook with this, with this thing. And he got a speeding ticket, you know, trying to take his daughter to a Taylor Swift conference. And meanwhile, I'm reading the news and it's, you know, I'm reading probably New York times or even Bloomberg or something. And I'm seeing all these like protests, you know, of, of really, really terrible. Um, I would, I would call them killings, but probably murders. And so um, I just like, I couldn't square what was happening just right in front of me with what I was reading also right in front of me. And it was just this moment of like, wait, this is this, I have to really kind of question the entire world that I, I am living in right now and the assumptions. Uh, and so um, I actually, you know, I, I think my book is uh, a story of um, a woman's coming of age, but professional coming of age, but also another coming of age, I think it's a political coming of age. I think it is a, um, I, I can say it as a, the, what the self-discovery actually was, was one of um, certainly a political awakening, but also how working in hedge funds and private equity, like radicalized me to the left, which is, you know, actually I working in it didn't want me to double down on be on that side, but it made me realize like, actually I was working on, on the side of winners. And I didn't want that to be the case because it, I just like, it just felt entirely wrong to me in my body. And I, I couldn't really know. I didn't really know why, because again, my boss never yelled at me, you know, he treated me well, but there was just, there was these moments and that, that, um, police uh being pulled over by police was one moment another tiny moment and I'm, I'm not even sure if this is in the book but 
Um, we're at this kind of conference investor day and there are like f- free, uh, there's a, there's like a stand of from Warby Parker and people are giving out free glasses and free sunglasses. And I was just like, well, okay, being mathematical, they're, you know, approximately a hundred dollars each, but like billionaires do not need free Warby Parker sunglasses or glasses. You know, who need them? People who can't afford glasses, who need them to be able to see it in order to like go to school, do their, you know, working class job. I just like, I was like, why are we giving billionaires these freebies, you know, symbolized in a Warby Parker's glasses. And, you know, I just, I just felt like it was fundamentally wrong, even though like, again, everyone was super nice, you know, no, no one like hardly even sweared where I was working. You know, it just was very, everything was gentle and pristine, you know? And so, um, but absolutely I see the book as, as my, uh, political awakening. And I, I, I am very, very much a leftist. So. Yeah, that was, it was so interesting. That part was like, I'm glad you brought that up because that also was an interesting part of the book to me, which was that I think that like, in a ways it's like a very honest book. I, or it is a very honest book in the sense that I think that we want our political awakenings to be very dramatic, right? We see something that happens and it alerts us to the injustice in the world. Um, you know, my parents like to tell me that when I was a child that like we went to Korea and I saw a homeless person and that that sort of informed my uh, mm. politics and that, I mean, and, but now I think about it, it's like, it probably wasn't that, you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I bet it was something similar to like, wait, what the fuck? He doesn't have to pay for his dress. He didn't yeah, exactly. you know, Warby Parker's. Or it's yeah. like the war it's like the Warby Parker glasses and that I think that uh one of the things I thought about in the book and I, I wanted to ask you about it because I think that the path that most Asian American writers take, right? Um, or most immigrant or even black writers take is that they tend to come from some form of privilege, right? And that they are not so connected into what I think is like a more normy type of Asian American college experience and then early professional life experience. But you are much closer to that, right? You didn't go straight into an MFA program and be like, I'm going to be a writer. And everyone's like, okay, man, like you actually did what a lot of Asian American people at these schools do which is that you went and worked at a hedge fund. <laughs> you yeah, tried to be right. <laughs> like you're just like, I'm going to be rich, you know? And like, I've <laughs> thought about this quite a bit because, you know, like I think that all of us, like, you know, Tyler has this too, right. For his, his own, uh, for his own people is just like, you're kind of tasked at some level to be representative or something like that. And you sometimes feel that. Right. And I think that you will start when this book comes out, I think you'll feel that a bit. Right. Um, uh, and I think like, well, most Asian American people, like uh, people in New York City, for example, like they'll go to like Baruch College or something like that, right? They're not going to Harvard, but even the ones that go to Harvard, most of them go work in hedge funds, right? And where they try and work in finance, and their most their main motivation is just to uh, be financially comfortable in the same way that you you were. I want the question I have is a little bit weird one, but it's like. I don't know. Sometimes I just conclude that that conclusion is correct, right? That the world that we're in right now, which is of writing and sort of cultural production or whatever, like it kind of sucks for us in a lot of ways, even if we're successful, you know, within it. And so it's like a, like what I I guess, like, I just want to ask you, like, you know, like, is there still parts of you that 
think about that. Like, you know, you're just like, oh man, what if I had just like, maybe it would have been better for me to make like $3 million bonus a year or something like that. Because like, then I don't have to care about whether or not, you know, like uh, this publishing house or this like reviewer or whatever is racist or like stupid or expects like the most limited vision of what like the type of stuff that we can do, you know? Um, and I could just, you know, buy their magazine and then just fire that person or something like that, right? <laughs> I have these thoughts a lot, right? Which is why and I wanted to want, know since you went through it, you know, like what, like, what, like what's your, what, what is your thinking about that? Well, I think uh, that is a great question. And Jay, you're right. It is a little weird, but I will answer it um, in just uh, in a multi-part way. So one is I was actually confronted with the very option you just said, whereby, you know, the relationship I write about in the book, um, my partner at the time comes from fairly extreme wealth right? as well. And, you know, he, uh, as I describe in the book, kind of tried to control my career options. And um, it, I felt very controlled in a money way. And he he kept on talking about how like, you know, uh, we would, you know, at, when we get married, you don't ever have to worry about money and you can do all the writing you want. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, to be honest, that does sound a little attractive, you know, because I mean, I mean now I'm a freelance writer. It, it is very, very, very difficult. Um, yeah. I remember him saying, uh, you know, I, I told him I wanted to get an MFA and he was like, well, why, why do you need an MFA? We'll just like buy uh, magazines and you can publish in them. And it's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And he specifically mentioned great. like the Paris review, you know, yeah. and, um, and then, so, you know, he, he and his family are, I mean, they have multiple, multiple homes, but their uh, primary base is Michigan. And, uh, Michigan has a, a very well, highly regarded MFA program. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to do creative nonfiction. Michigan, so far, I think still now only does poetry and fiction. And so he was like, well, we will just make a huge donation to them so they can open up a nonfiction like program. And I'm like, that that's not how I want my career to work. You understand? Like I want yeah, all my work, success. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't first of all it doesn't work like that and I just like yeah. I really I really care about being independent. And I think that it's how I grew up, it's how I want to feel and it's it's what I actually morally believe in. And so um even when confronted with the option, I just it, it um you know, uh it it just didn't sound appealing to me at all and you know, in in the book I end up leaving him um to go out uh, on my own. And then the other thing is, um, Jay, it did took it did take me a really long time to actually quit finance. I knew I wanted to get out around, I think, age 25, 26 when I dropped out of Wharton. And I dropped out of Wharton um, because I didn't want to take on student loans, you know, 200,000 of debt and, and possibly go into a career in which I would not make be able to make that back and so i um i dropped out uh and at that time i i i took really exciting classes um in the humanities from philosophy to english literature to creative writing and that's how i knew like i really i think wanted to at, at least try this writing route and this isn't like a new thing um because also in the book I, I, 
how it ends is I, I actually wrote a novel when I was eight called Yeah, that was one of the most touching parts of the <laughs> that book. That was great. Like yeah. you made a little colophon for yourself yes. and everything like that. So I cute. made a colophon yeah. and it was it was called I like stamped it and I like published myself and it was called the Purple Flamingo Press. And, you know, now I'm being published by Penguin Press, which is really just really a beautiful like um, full circle. Yeah, full circle. And so um, <laughs> um, so it's not like I was really discovering some something new, but I was discovering something buried within myself that I had allowed the financial track to take me on all these detours. Um, but it took me from that time I dropped out of Wharton to at least, uh, when did I start my MFA? 2018. And I dropped out of Wharton in 2011. So it took seven years for me to fully exit that world. Because yeah. as you were mentioning, like part of it was attractive. I'm like, okay, so many, many writers and artists have a day job. Like, I don't think there's any shame in having a day job. And I think many people now have multiple day jobs just to make things work. And so I said, well, since I have this finance background, why don't I have a day job that actually pays a lot? It did not work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The presents you got were crazy though. That was the most appealing thing about it. Cause you would <laughs> describe the presents you got. It's like, like, yeah. <laughs> like a $5,000 yeah. bag, like $2,000 yes. leggings. And yes. you, like, yeah, the leggings you would randomly get like a jacket and you'd take it back because it was too big. And they'd be like, that jacket is $6,000. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, are yes. These presents? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> these are work presents? Like, that's insane. Do you have to write them off on your taxes? Like, how does this yeah. work? Like $2,500 gift certificate to SoulCycle. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. That was so sick. I was like, oh, yeah. my God. Oh, yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, one of the, like, on the topic of exiting, um, one of the things I was really, you have this like moment at the end of the book and it's just such a great line. You say, um, the trauma plot and the capitalism plot are increasingly the same plot. And like what I at least took you to mean by that. And you, and then you said that, you know, um, each makes it hard to exit the other. And what I took you to be kind of saying is that, you know, we work in these conditions that are often really brutalizing, right? But at the same time, we're also so obsessed with, getting ahead, finding security, staying ahead, that we accept the brutal conditions because we've also accepted that we need to keep striving. But we, because we keep striving, we keep accepting these brutal conditions, you know? But one of the things that I thought was um, surprisingly moving about the book, and I say surprisingly because it's, I was moved to sympathize with a group of people I'm not usually moved to sympathize with, but was like, I kept thinking the whole time that all of these people's lives are miserable, including, you know, your boss. Including um, and, yes. you know, Oh my it's, God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like not a thing that I think as someone on the left, I'm often moved to like sympathize with billionaires. But one of the like things that I thought was um, kind of touching for lack of a better word, it was like, is that you seem to be showing that while there are, there is certainly a victim hierarchy in terms of who is most abused by capital. There is even the people at the top are kind of victims, at least emotionally of the system too. And they're also carrying this constant trauma and burnout in the name of, you know, accruing more and more wealth, but they never seem to be enjoying any of it. I don't know. Do you, is did you come to think of your boss and some of your other high flying coworkers as people who are also sort of traumatized by, by their work in this way? Yes, I absolutely. I think they were both traumatized and for lack of a better word, stuck. I think they are stuck on the same cycles and treadmills that everyone else is. And I would absolutely include my boss um, in this because he, I never saw him relax for a single second. And I just think that is no way to work. And 
you know, there've been wonderful, wonderful pieces about this terrible idea of precarity that we all feel and insecurity that we all feel now. But I think, you know, he's a billionaire, but certainly from my perch, he felt he had a feeling of insecurity about his life um, because the market is notoriously fickle. One return, one good year does not mean a good year the next year. And he just had, you know, he, he was anxious all the time, wasn't sleeping well. And I don't think he was like enjoying his life that much either. He, he really almost never took days off when he had, um, he had major surgery a couple times, um, during my, my tenure and he ended up, uh, working just like hours later. And so I just, I, I, I don't think that, um, I don't think he's he's having any fun either. And so what I'm trying to show is that here is this office physically so glamorous and just like no friction anywhere. But underneath, it really is, I think, misery and um, kind of a dirt, dirt, like very just unglamorous uh, way of working. And I think it's 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 brutal. What it that's what it is. I, I, there's this incredible scene in the book and it made me think quite a lot, right? Um, this is one of the moments I, like it was, he wants to go surfing, right? Like the, your boss was like into surfing and he doesn't know where to go. And he's like, can you find me? He says, you, can you find me a house in Malibu? Right. And as like, oh my God, like he, so he's going to go surf with like 6,000 people, you know, and and 5,000 of them are going to hate him because he's not a local. And then, and but he doesn't seem to know any of this, you know, but he like decides to be into surfing. And then there's this incredible thing where like you get him a car and he's like, I can't show up at the beach in a Cadillac yes. Escalade. Can, I mean, can you get me a truck? And I was, that's when it clicked for me. I was like, oh, this guy is so unhappy, you know? Like he doesn't have any actual experiences. Like he can't just, I, I go surfing a lot. I drive to the beach in a Subaru Outback and <laughs> <laughs> there's no problem, you know? And it's like, I can literally go whenever I want, except for days where I have to work. But you know, like I have a flexible schedule so I can go a lot, you know? And it's like, I was like, oh, he actually doesn't, he can't do what I do, you know, which is just like, oh, I, this waves are good. I'm going to go surfing, which is what every surfer does. They try and structure their lives because the waves are like, you know, like some days are good. Some days are bad. He has to be like, I'm going to fly to Malibu. I can only be in a house in this one area, which is like Billionaire's Beach or whatever yep. the fuck it's called. <laughs> and actually my brain, I am so insecure and miserable that like, I have to think, oh, no, I can't show up in, in a Cadillac Escalade to the beach. I need a truck. I was like, that is like, I cannot think of a less happy thing. And I and, and then in the other part of my head, it's like, he probably can't even surf if he's surfing like this. You can't learn to surf like this. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. It seems so miserable to me. I don't know. Oh, but yeah, it was an amazing scene, I thought, because I just like I was like, oh, like he can't do that thing that all surfers do, you know, yeah. and, and just actually, kind of show up and be right. really relaxed about it. Right. And right. as you were saying, Jay, of how he, you know, asked me to prepare this really elaborate surf trip. Um, and uh, 
I also got him a, because it's really crowded, uh, you know, over there with a lot of surfers. I had to find him a whole local crew to take him out onto the waves and kind of like steer other people away from him. <laughs> yeah. so, what a yeah. miserable life that is. No, seriously. It's just, <laughs> I cannot think of anything sadder than that. You know, like know. you're like this weird curiosity and everyone hates you. You know, <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. It was a great scene. I loved it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was very, very cool. And the book, you know, for the people who are listening is filled with these types of things. Right. I obviously, I have, of course, like gravitated towards that one because it was surfing related, but there's a lot of, he does this a lot, you know, and it just shows that he's like, I don't know. It just shows his base. Like he's not really interacting in the world as like a normal person. Right. And I was like, man, if I had a billion dollars, I would just buy a house like in Santa Cruz and I would not work and I would go surfing every day and I would not, you know, like that, that's how you, that's how, if you want to surf, that's what you should do if you have a billion dollars. But you know, he has to be weird about it. (laughs) Oh man. It was, yeah, it was very cool. Um, uh yeah the one other thing i wanted to ask you about was that um the structure of this book like i want to talk about the writing part of it a little bit because i found it super interesting actually because a memoir generally starts at the beginning and you sort of come up with a story of motivation and then you see the motivation or the i want right is the sort of musical theater version of it but every memoir kind of has it and then you either get what you want or you don't you learn lessons along the way This book at the beginning, I was kind of like, I was like taken aback a little bit because like you present yourself as somebody who has no idea why you're doing the thing that you're doing. And actually, I can't tell as a reader why you did it either. You know, I was like, well, you made, because that you'd say that at the beginning you worked at Fidelity and you made more money, right? You have a degree for MIT. You're clearly very smart, right? Um, and then you're taking this assistant job and everyone is like, why are you taking this assistant job? Yes, right. Everyone. And you don't explain it to us why you're really taking this assistant job, except in ways that like, I think we're supposed to not exactly believe. Right. But like, it seems like you're very ambivalent about it, but then you're super excited about it. you completely change your life. You ditch your fiance at the time, the rich kid, <laughs> and then you end up moving to New York. I'm like, well, why did you do that? You know? <laughs> and then in the second half of the book, everything is revealed, right? Like in the first half, I was like, this is an interesting book because this is like an Asian American memoir. And I can't remember an Asian American memoir that made so little of, of, of anything about like, you know, growing up in these types of households or anything like that. And it's all withheld. In, and then the second half, is very interesting stylistically because it speeds up considerably in terms of like the sentences and the pacing and the scenes. And some of the conversations are just G-chat transcripts and everything like that. And everything is revealed into this sort of like chaotic way. And I don't know, I would just say like as a, you know, as a fellow writer, I thought that it was pretty cool. Like I was like, oh, okay. Thank like, you. you know, like I, at the beginning, like I'm like, what is wrong with this woman? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was like, why is she taking this job? You know, like she's going to get paid less to be abused by this billionaire. Like who cares? You know. <laughs> but then we start to understand it. And so it's almost at the beginning, you're like a cipher, right? Like we, we yes. don't really understand you. And then towards the end. Um, 
like was that did you like i don't know i don't write in very structured ways i don't make outlines i just let the spirit move me which is why you know, some of my writing is a mess but like did you was that intentional like was that what did you think about it that way and if so like were there books that you were looking at that that sort of inspired that type of structure I'm so happy you noticed the structure because all of it was super intentional. Um, I think w- the book that I I would say modeled my my book after the most, and this may be surprising or or, or not, you know, I um, is actually uh, the remains of the day, which is a novel, um, but. The main, but it it is a memoir or diaristic account of someone coming to terms with both their work life and life life over the course of, of, I think, a few days in that book. But what that book really is, is I think a documentation of a changing consciousness, which at first really starts with a lot of self-delusion and telling yourself how much you love this job and why your boss is great. And and then, you know, kind of really, I would say, you know, it, Mr. Stevens is really never chaotic, but uh, for me, it was really more chaotic towards the end when I was, when I, the character was breaking through. And I think, um, and the reason why that book is, was the primary model for me is I really wanted to understand how to do this, uh, I, I wanted the reader to be smarter than the character in the book. Um, but all yeah, of that, that was yeah. very, yeah, that, that worked. Cause at the beginning I was like, I was like, this woman is so dumb. <laughs> 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 Not in an insulting way, but you know, in the same way as remains of the day, right? Like uh, the book starts with that Ishiguro epigraph. Right. And yes. so like, I, I read that and I was like, okay, I can see a little bit of that. Right. Because I think when we're basically writing in the first person, if you don't read Ishiguro, then you've, you're wrong. You're like you've, exactly. you're missing something, you know, like you've exactly. really missed something there because there's nothing better than like those opening, even like the cyborg book. You're just like, okay, this is yes. like weird, but like, it's like so beautifully done. And in, in like the mystery of it is, is stretched out in this way that only he, that he does the best, I think. Right. Exactly. And so, right. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Okay. It makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And so that book is, is all about, I mean, he is just a master at putting such clear, um, both telling and showing on the page, but there's also so much between the lines, but you have to be so tight and specific about what you're putting on the page such that the story that's in subtext only, like the, the reader will, have a clear idea of what the character is hiding from him or herself. Right. And that's, um, that's like parts one and two, two of the book. I was like concealing so much for myself. And, you know, here's the thing is like, I didn't have from an epistemic, epistemic standpoint, I really did not have access to my past self for a very long time. I told myself, including the early parts of that, the time frame in the book, my childhood was great. My mom's, my, my therapist reminds me all the time. I still have the same therapist to this day um, that I, I end up seeing in the book. Um, when I started meeting with her, I, you know, my burnout, I was so burnt out. And I said, well, like I had a great childhood and my mom's my best friend. She's like the nicest person ever. And, you know, obviously I don't think that now I love her to death, but I, I think she, you know, was unkind to me for, for perhaps 
understandable reasons, but nevertheless, she hurt me in the past. And I just was not willing to acknowledge that hurt at all. And so I was, I was concealing not just my work story for myself, but my entire history from myself. And right, so right. only when I was, so the part three, you know, I have a, um, a epigraph from David Graeber and David Wingrow. And part of that is I just- I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and the middle need... one is from Agnes Callard, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I have so much to say about that too. Um, but part three is really about, I can't find a way to go forward until I really reconcile everything that's happened to me in the past. And so I think they, they, you know, and so when I finally piece my past back together, what is going to be my future? And I just, I, I actually did not know. And as you mentioned, Jay, it was completely chaotic. Um, my kind of process of self understanding, but I really think that is how I think that is how hu- humans change. It's not linear. It's often chaotic. And I really wanted that to feel real, you know? And so the big kind of, I I would say risk I took in terms of writing was to, uh, just, yeah, kind of start the book with this character. I I hope readers can end up rooting for, but you know, in the beginning, I I didn't know myself. I, I, I think I, I just wanted to present myself truthfully and I don't know if I was likable or not, but it was the truth that I was, you know, kind of a hollow version of myself, just going through these motions of like what I thought I should do in terms of career and success and dating and parents and relationships. And meanwhile, I I was just, I had, I had no strong or, or possibly any sense of self. And so that's what I, was trying to develop on the page throughout throughout the book. I think it worked because my real my main thought for reading the opening page was like, what is wrong with this woman? You know, (laughs) (laughs) okay. At the very least, marry the super rich boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but then you just ditch him, and then you move to New York to be this guy's assistant. I was like, what is wrong with this person? And then you don't tell us at all, and it really made it satisfying when I learned what was wrong you know because Mm -hmm. I was I spent a long time being like when is the shoe gonna drop you know and then and then it drops it was very it was cool yeah yeah Yeah. I mean I have the same reaction as Jay and you mentioned like you took some risks with how you presented yourself and I mean I think what struck me about the book was how compassionate you are to others and how risky Mm -hmm. you were with how you represented yourself like I mean, you talk about in the book about your, you know, the challenges with your parents and, you know, Boone is, I mean, at points, even pretty cruel with some of the comments he makes and stuff. But by the end of the book, you're really compassionate and gracious about both of them, you know, in ways that I found really deeply admirable. But they were all, you were risky with how you presented yourself in the beginning. I had a similar reaction to Jay and not in a way that is like, I don't want to keep reading this. I was like, <laughs> I want to find out when she finds out how wrong she is, you know, like that at the opening of the book. Um, but one thing I found just structurally too, that was so impressive is you save some of those nuggets about, you know, um, more clarity about what your childhood was like, or more, um, you know, sharing about your sexual assault that comes at the end. And I think um, a different kind of writer, 
who would have written a worse book would have put those at the beginning because it would have been getting the reader on the side of the character, you know, like, because it would have programmed us to say, well, she's making these dumb decisions, but she has this trauma and she has this background, you know? Um, And I, yeah, like I said, I just found it um, really admirable the, the way you sort of inverted that usual structure where it's not the average trauma plot and it's not the average kind of immigrant story. And we get both of those things, but um, you know, we get them after sort of, gradually coming to the side of this particular character. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was great. So I'm not surprised to hear that structure was really intentional because it seemed so thoughtful. Thank you for that comment, uh, Tyler, because um, I, it was also a very uh, intentional um, choice of mine to want to kind of subvert the, uh, I, I would say there's, there's an element of, you know, just, just purely in terms of my, um, net worth rags to riches, right? I, I kind of wanted to subvert that, like, uh, you know, I grew up poor. Um, not, there are wonderful stories that follow that structure. I just didn't want that to be my story. It's also because that's not how I see myself and it's not how I want to identify primarily, you know? Um, and so I didn't want to start with my childhood struggles where, you know, my, my, my dad was physical with me when I would spill a little bit of milk, you know, because those five cents matter to him. And they matter to him because he had survived a very traumatic time during the cultural revolution in China. And then, and then when he came over to America, he was um, going to grad school, working uh, in restaurants where his pay something, you know, was very, very little, but they would pay him in food. He didn't actually have food to eat. Um, and they would pay him in food and, and it would be soup. And I was told that, you know, his boss at the time, the ch- you know, Chinese restaurant manager boss would scoop out the solids of the food and just give him the broth. So that kind of level of like extreme financial struggle, I just, I didn't want the book to start out with that because I feel like some of those experiences can be just so totalizing and dominating. I, I mean, as they were for me, but I didn't really recognize the effects of that. And I wanted my book to be about primarily how someone ends up where they are and how do they unpack how their past and history affected where they are today? Because that was my process. I just like, I blocked out so much of my childhood just to, just to be in a position. I, I was trying to have, I think I often think of escape velocity. I just like needed to do so much, you know, and accelerate to just get out of the, the these stifling orbits that I found myself in. Yeah, it, it, it's a very, I thought it was in that way. I think about this a lot for very obvious reasons, right? Tyler and I actually talk about it too, which is just like, how do you actually represent the history upon one person's way of interacting with the world, right? Given their identity. And um, what parts are relevant and what parts are not, what, what things are manipulative and what things are not, right? And that there is a way in which we can acknowledge that all this history is real, right? Like, yes, my grandmother walked across the parallel in Korea at the start of the war. My parents were born in a war zone. It's true, you know, um, that uh, there was a legacy of imperialism from Japan that I am part of. 
And I, none of these thoughts ever occurred to me, yeah. <laughs> ever, you know, until I was like 35 years old, right? Yes, um, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, do, does that mean they don't exist? No, it doesn't mean they don't exist, right? But that the telling of it, of every story of somebody who is of an identity that is supposed to be sympathetic and is trying to get you on your side these days is so reliant upon this idea that you have to front load all the sympathy, right? Like yes. you have to tell it in this historic <laughs> way where you're like, I am from this type of lineage. When in fact, I think more realistically, like we're just so good at blocking everything out and that our parents also block it out because they don't really tell us shit about all that stuff that happened before either, right? So you you detail that your parents come here as a part of a wave of, you know, small, not really a wave, but like a population of people who came in 1990, right? 1989, yep. 1990. And that the precipitating event for all of this was Tiananmen Square. Yep. And that um, that is a very specific type of person. I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people who know that history know can probably picture your parents. Yes. But like, it's not like when you're at dinner or something like that with your parents, they, all they do is talk about the trauma of those things. <laughs> <No. laughs> they don't talk about it at all. They don't know? talk about it at all. Ever, yeah. you never know about it. No, and so never. then you have to yeah. discover it as an adult and then you start to make calculations about it, right? And then you're like, oh, well, this is... And then sometimes you can be very manipulative with yourself about it and you can excuse certain like problems that you have based on some history that was never relevant to you until right yes. now, right? Exactly. Uh, and that exactly. is sort of the narcissism that, that happens. But um, I thought that the way in which you were reacting at the beginning of this book was so relatable to me even though I was doing the career that you eventually found yourself wanting to do, I still think about it sometimes, you know, I'm just like, well, I don't know, like I've done very well, you know, in writing much better than I thought I would. And yet I sometimes find myself in the same mentality where I'm just like, no, all I am doing is fighting everybody to be, to stay successful <laughs> because yes. like there's no actual like, artistic thoughts really it's just like what i know is like i can like out compete you you know not you but like you know like a random you and uh and it's it, it's like that is our like sort of now i've obviously like you know like there's a lot of stuff that i've done that i'm very proud of whatever but like it's weird like you are kind of like at the at the outset like the mindset that you had at the beginning, which was like any context, I'm just going to like survive and I'm going to justify and I'm going to figure out a way to like use my intelligence and like competitiveness to win because I don't even know why I want to win, but I just feel like yes. I have to. Yes. I don't know. Let me tell you, as somebody who is, you know, deep into a writing career, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same right. fucking thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. It's just you do it for less money. <laughs> yeah. It really is. But um but man, it was so like I was I was kind of blown away because I don't think um look, I don't want to be so positive about your book because you know, <laughs> like I don't I don't want it to seem disingenuous, but I really did love it. And it was, that, like, was great. that was the part I was just like, wow, it's like this is real, you know, like the and it's been produced in a way where it feels extremely in a right written way intentional and that's mm -hmm. in, you know people can say true things right but when it's sort of crafted in a way i thought that was i thought it was great and so i i i uh i 
appreciate it. it made me actually think quite a bit like i said when we were off the air i was like it was quite generative in that sort of way because i was just like oh man like you know um, yeah I, I well thank you because be i also way. tried to be um i think t- tying to tyler what you were saying earlier i really try to be the hardest on myself um because i i i feel like it is you know other people all the characters in the book absolutely all of them are uh, written with pseudonyms and um except for my husband now who has a one-line appearance at the very end um his, right. his name is true I think it is an incredible responsibility to write stories with true living characters. And I told myself from the outset that I wasn't going to write about anybody who I actually ultimately didn't feel some sort of affection for. Just like I needed to feel their full humanity. Even people who both were emotionally and physically at times, like very, like, cruel or traumatizing toward me um but ultimately it is my story and so yeah it 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 gets really harrowing and I think really um difficult and ugly at times because I think the story of self-discovery is itself a um I think it can be really actually violent I'm thinking of this uh quote in um it's one of my favorite quotes ever from angels in America and um it's talking about how it's uh, talking, it's asking the Mormon mother, uh, I think, <clears throat> asking God how humans change. And um, the character says something about splitting um, the human, like down the middle, like t- the hands going in, like squeezing, and then it's up to you to sew yourself back up. And I just love that. And ultimately, I think... Um, I think the quote actually from Angels America is about true fundamental human change is mangled guts pretending. And I just love that because in order to change, it's like your guts are totally mangled. It's pretending and it's up to you to sew yourself back up. And I think that that certainly was my process of, of change. And I, I was, I think at times punishing of myself, both in terms of my self-criticism, but also I think I took some of my uh, self-punishment out physically in terms of my relationship to my body. And um, ultimately, I didn't believe my therapist at the time, but when I actually quit my job, all those, certainly all the cognitive dissonance immediately disappeared. I mean, it was a little bit shocking to me how, how neat it was, but it just... I was just fighting that truth that I didn't really, I wasn't ready to receive, you know, until I was really ready to receive it and walk away. Cool. Tyler, do you have any other questions? We've kept you on a long time. No, no, man. I think that's it. This is great. Yeah. Thank you so much. The book is Private Equity. Um, You can buy it now if you're listening to this podcast. We will put a link to it. Um, but yeah, thank you for like, I don't know, this is a world I didn't really know. And it was cool. And, you know, and, and I think that you're going to get the Liar's Poker uh, comparison quite a bit. But Liar's Poker, I think, is a great book, first of all. And secondly, in the same way, it's like this, it's like a window into this thing. And it is like, I don't know. It's like, oh, my God, they give each other $2,000 leggings. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And then it's much more than that. You know, if it was yeah. just that, I would have, I think I would have also enjoyed the book you know, because I would have just been like, whoa. Yeah. Like you can absolutely, which I'm, I'm riotously uninterested in finance. And, it, and this was great. Like, I think you can be totally disinterested in like how a hedge fund works and just be captivated by it, you know? Um, yeah. No, it was, it was fantastic. Uh, I have a friend who works at one now and he's, um, like he describes it and he's just like, it kind of sounds fun, you know, like he's it, like for him, it's like he, he like kind of appreciates the feeling that he is competing at all these things, you know, and there's an appeal to that. And, um, and it's like, oh, we have to win and this is a game and at stake is like all this money and what could be a more fun game than that? Yep. But I don't think his fund is anywhere near as fancy as the one that you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so cool. It's like, oh my God. They had like, you did put this detail where they like hired people to clean the toilets after. At, at oh, that was oh, yeah. And used it. I was like, it that is horrible. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, it was one of, I just, um, yeah, because they're so efficient that they don't always have the five seconds to see if the toilet auto flushed. So then. How do you solve this problem? You hire um, someone, usually a woman, to kind of take care of men's shit, literally. And so, uh, sorry, I didn't know if I could say that. No, you can say that. <laughs> no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. For those, that detail, I think, is a very good way to sell that for this book. If you want to hear more about this, <laughs> you should buy this book. Thank you for coming on, and uh, we will talk to you. Uh, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have you out again. This is great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so awesome. much, Jay okay. and Tyler. This was wonderful. Okay.